Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast of Cornerstone Anglican Church in Bridgeport. We are a people seeking to proclaim that Jesus is King by loving God and loving Bridgeport. Good evening. Yes, when you mention the phrase, there's not really a response that's standard to that. But good, good to see y'all. Um, let me pray to begin. The Lord be with you. Jesus, thank you that we are gathered in your name and thank you that when we gather in your name that you are in our midst and Jesus we declare as we come before you as we come before your word as we come preparing our hearts to hear your word proclaimed we declare that we want to see you you are here and we want to see you our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you When we see you, Jesus, our lives make sense. You make sense of us. And so we ask that this evening that we would live by your breath, that we would live by the words that you speak to us. Spirit of God, we invite you to individually speak to us, to breathe life and to reveal Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, come. Amen. Well, we're continuing on in our series on Moses, and last week, Karen, right, Karen proclaimed about the crossing of the Red Sea, this, you know, pivotal moment in the salvation story of the scriptures where the people of Israel walk through the Red Sea with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right, as they are delivered from slavery into freedom and Directly after that story, in between what we have today and what we had last week for our text, was a little story of uh, them realizing that this, well, they, they rejoiced, they danced, it was great. That was one chapter that we didn't read. Miriam led a great dance around, uh, unless Karen, did Karen talk about Miriam's dance? Nope, cool, keep going. All right, so, uh, so they, they danced, it was great. And then they quickly realized, once they got into the wilderness, that there was a problem. Uh, their newfound freedom uh, did not include water. Right? The wilderness, uh, great at some things, not great at water. And so they grumbled, and God provided miraculously water for them. And in this story that we have today, we see that they also realize the wilderness, not so great at food. And actually, if we look, if you have your uh, Bibles with you, and you, you want to turn to Exodus 16, it says in verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled because they were which really this makes actually a lot of sense to me Um, it doesn't seem like a couple people were hungry it seems like they probably had some food that they brought with them when they left Egypt that they carried across with them and then they were running out of that food and maybe they were able to get some little bits of food in the wilderness like I don't know what they would have gotten but that was not enough and everybody seemed pretty hungry and it wasn't one person it was everyone and when you're really hungry All you can think about is, I'm really hungry. We really need food. Like, do you know those times in your life that you're really hungry? When are times that you have been really hungry? A lot of times for me pop up when I ask that question. But one of the most memorable times was when I was on a wilderness trip, when I was on a kind of a three and a half week camping trip before my senior year of high school. And it was probably the most intense thing I've ever done, actually, three and a half weeks in the Canadian Boundary Waters, Canadian side of Boundary Waters. 
And it was about 10 of us guys who literally packed a bag that carried three and a half weeks of food on us. And so you can imagine the problem when you're packing a bag like that. You're thinking, okay, I know I'm going to get hungrier because I'm working out like 10 hours a day canoeing and backpacking. But I also know I have to carry this thing for three and a half weeks. And so you try to like split the middle, like carry more food than you're eating right now every day because you're going to work out more, you're going to eat more, but don't carry so much food that your back breaks. That was the, the equation. And we quickly realized about a week into it that we vastly underestimated how much food we would eat. I do not kid with you, we packed six to 8,000 calories a day that we would eat. And about a week in, we were like, finishing dinner, still really hungry. Two weeks in, finishing dinner, I could eat another dinner. And so we began to be, what I would say, deliriously hungry, which was on a regular basis, all that we could think about or talk about was food. And we had these campfire conversations. At these campfire conversations, you can imagine what the conversation was about. Uh, I remember distinctly us each describing the meal that we wanted the first meal we would have, I wanted to go to McDonald's and just get five McChickens. I, I don't know why. And I remember our, our counselor, he would tell us the story. It was a gripping story of this thing at his college called a dining hall. Where you could go up for seconds or thirds, a buffet, and even on the ice cream. And still to this day, he was a leading college grad. and. Um, I already went to Wheaton College at that time, and I still have an affinity for the Wheaton College dining hall that makes no sense because I didn't go there, but it's because I imagined it so much, kind of this delirious hunger that we experience, right? You know that feeling of hunger. That's how they're feeling as they're going in this wilderness. That's all that they could think about. That's what our text actually says. It says, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Like, oh man, they're sitting around the campfire, they're thinking, remember those meat pots in Egypt? Makes sense, they, they started out as agrarian farmers there as well, and so they probably had cattle, and just remember when like, we had these pots, and these pots were filled with chicken and then we just throw a stone on the fire and then we put like the the wheat and the stuff and the bread and then sometimes we even add the meat and the bread together beef sandwich but that's that's all they're probably able to think and to talk about and so they're saying you know what i died there I, I go back i go back to egypt just have one last meal and then god you can take me down I've had my beef sandwich. That's, that'd, be, that'd be fine. I would way prefer that to currently right now starving to death and all I can think about is food with no end in sight. This newfound freedom that they have in the wilderness, it feels actually a lot to them like slavery. And all of a sudden when they remember their slavery, it feels a lot to them like freedom. It's not actually them thinking altogether that rationally because they're leaving out a lot of parts of slavery that they're just happening to forget, but nostalgia does that, right? Mm -hmm. Because they had meat pots at least, mm -hmm. and meat pots feel like the only thing I can think about right now. Right? We have an incredible knack as human beings 
for not being able to focus sometimes on anything but our present circumstantial And so that nostalgia narrative began to fill their minds. Where is it? Where is it for us? Okay, let's, let's, let's think about this for a second. When we look at the New Testament, the New Testament uses this narrative of crossing the Red Sea. The, the early church has always seen this narrative of crossing the Red Sea to represent baptism. It's actually one of the greatest motifs that we can understand about our salvation. That we are actually in slavery, dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, and Jesus, by baptism, has brought us out of death into life, out of slavery, into freedom. And where is it in your Christian life that you feel like, you know, freedom feels like slavery, and slavery feels like freedom? Or where are the places that actually you feel like, you know, I actually... I think being a Christian feels more like slavery than it feels like deliverance. I think not being a Christian actually feels like I'd have so much more freedom. Right? You, you guys with me here? We know those, we know those feelings. Right? When, when being a Christian feels like there's shackles on it. What, what if I could just make as much money as I want to and not even have to worry about giving it away? Like what would that, that, what would that be like? What, what would happen if I was just able to live out a different sexual ethic and be with who I wanted to be with and not have to worry? What, what, if, what if I could just believe what I wanted to believe and that just felt right to me? What if I didn't have to stay in hard conversations and have to always have a soft heart to people who are in pain? What if I could just ignore it and walk away? confession here, for the last uh, two weeks, I have really noticed grumbling in my heart, this kind of nostalgic grumbling around money specifically. I, uh, I have been carrying financial needs very much just as a burden. I've been carrying them as a burden, and I, uh, I picked up a week and a half ago Crane Chicago Business Magazine at, at WeWork, where I often said they have these and I picked it up and I was looking at one of the ads and had on the ad a couple principal speakers for a new business conference. And one of the names I could have sworn was the same name as my friend's brother in high school. And I was like, wait a second, let me actually just like, like I, I literally just saw the name and I flipped it. And then I was like, wait, there was a picture there. Let me just check if that's my friend's brother from high school. And I was like, yeah, there's, there's no way that's, that's not him. And this was, like I say, a lot of people are my friends, but this was a legitimate friend from high school, right? Uh, and I really actually have met his brother. And I learned that he's the CEO of Cameo, you know, if you know that company, which is valued, uh, as I looked it up, as a, uh, it's about to make its IPO and it's valued currently at $1 billion. Now, I looked that up, and I want you to know that I did not uh, see that, learn that, and pause and think, wow, I should really pray for this guy. Because I know that people who are rich can be so tempted into the trappings of power and money. Right? When I looked at him tweeting about his first row Cubs seat, I did not you know, think, you know, actually, you know, he looks happy there on Instagram. I know that all the research says that the uber-rich people that they're actually way sad. I should really think about how I can pray for him in doing so. 
Instead of thinking those things, which I know, and I could, I could declare to you, I just felt. And what I felt was, what if I could start a company that began to be valued at $1 billion? Not only that, what if I could actually start a company that made that ridiculous amount of money and not be a Christian who preaches about giving away money so I could just, just spend it? Like, what would I spend it on? Like, what are all, what would that feel like to raise kids and be able to give them whatever I wanted? And I just began to see a nostalgic narrative, this idealized narrative in my mind that led to this grumbling and freedom being a Christian felt more like slavery. And slavery felt a lot more like freedom. So we can get stuck in this nostalgia. We, we, can, we can start to be in this mind space. And how is it that God responds? How does God respond when we begin this nostalgia narrative? Well, we see in this text how God responds to people of Israel. God responds by showing the people of Israel that he knows their needs, that he provides and he tests. How does God respond to us? He knows us, he provides for us, and he tests us. God knows us, he provides for us, and he tests us. Right, so how is it that God shows the people of Israel that he knows them? Well, we actually, it's, it's implicit in this text, but... We get it explicitly earlier in Exodus chapter 3, when God is speaking to Moses and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. Right? God who knew the whip in Egypt knows the food problem in the wilderness. Right? God knows what his people need. You know, the people of Israel were like, oh, we were just dancing. This is amazing. We're free. Oh, my goodness, God, you totally forgot this part. But this is not the first time that God thought about the fact that a human body needs food and water and a wilderness does not have food and water. God knows their need. God designed them to have that need. So this is what Jesus is saying. When we actually, you know, what, what's, what's really crazy is, you know, we know that God also knows their need because he provides for their need. Like, them grumbling about not having enough food is one of those things that what does God do? He, you know, spoiler alert, he gives them food because they really do need it. Right? It's what Jesus is saying in, in prayer. He's saying, look, when you come before me to pray, like, you don't need to pray with these really fancy words, and you don't need to repeat yourself with vain repetitions over and over and over again. Why? Because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And we also learn He really wants to give you good things. God led them into the wilderness knowing, and by the way, in this case, we really know God led them because they're literally presence of God, and that's going before them, and a pillar of fire by night. And so you know God's with you when you can literally see a glory cloud in your midst. He's leading them into the place of the wilderness, and he knows there they will need food. And Father, Father wants to give good gifts. What I find when God does provide for me, 
perhaps the most touching thing to me is actually that God knew what I actually needed. That God actually saw me. That he, he noticed me. That he heard me. And he provided there. Like, the people of Israel are about to be in front of the glory cloud. And they're going to hear God saying, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And you can imagine, there's probably a little bit of a conviction of like, oh man, you were just grumbling about this, and you are just mad at God, and oh, shoot. You can imagine, even more so, they're probably thinking, God was listening? Like, they don't know that much about God yet. Imagine to learn that revelation. God, God was listening to me? He actually really cares about the fact that I was talking to my mom about how I'm hungry? Like, he actually, he, he wants to provide. He wanted to rain bread from heaven for me. Anytime that I feel like I've received something from the Lord that I've asked for, when it's been a specific ask, when I end up getting the thing God provides, I feel so much more thankful, not about the thing that God provides. And this isn't just like, this is human nature. I feel so much more thankful that God was actually listening to me. Amen? Amen. So we see God knows us, and also that God truly provides for us. If you're with me, let's, let's continue. Uh, verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold. He's saying, watch. Just, just watch right now. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Now, if you can just step into Moses' shoes for a second there and imagine what that was like to hear. What do you mean you're about to rain bread from heaven for us, God? Like, has anyone seen Cloudy Man? Has anyone read the book Cloudy Man with a Chance of Meatballs? Like, you know, can Moses just think, what if, are you just literally rain bread from heaven? Like, what, what's he going to do there? And he says, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. We see is God knows our need and God provides. God supernaturally provides. So we read this story. God's really, what he's saying to them is, okay, you've been dreaming about meat pots. You've been dreaming about bread on the fire. You've been dreaming about all of this food. What I'm going to give to you is this. Look, they, they go, actually what, what, what happens later in the passage is that, the, is that Moses calls the people of Israel to join him at the place of the cloud, the place where God's glory is. And if we see in verse 9, um, and by verse 9, uh, I mean, verse uh, 10, it says, Behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Which, I don't know what the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud looks like. But imagine that you're with the whole people of Israel. And there's a cloud, which is the presence of God in your midst. And all of a sudden, that cloud gets inhabited by the glory of God himself. Like, do new living colors come in there? I don't know what happens. But you, you can imagine the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud, in front of all the people of Israel. And God says, I have heard, the Lord said to Moses, but I have a feeling God said to Moses, to such a volume that other people could also listen in. He says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. You see this big cloud, you hear this promise, and then all of a sudden nightfall comes and there's just dead quail everywhere across the wilderness. This one-time meal of quail for you. Then you go to bed and you have finally had that meat again. And you 
feeling pretty good about this God who's with you. And you wake up and you see the dew all over the horizon. And after the dew leaves, you see there's something else that's there. And it's like flaky, it's a little white. It's like coriander seed, which is probably helpful if you know what coriander seed is like. And you go and you pick it up and it tastes sweet, like honey. I think an unhelpful word that's in there is the word wafer, right? We think of manna. And we think of wafers, which brings me to think about communion wafers. Um, but it wasn't like that, uh, because I didn't like the taste of that. And they seemed to really like the taste for 40 years. right? Because, you know, if you even think about it, like in the ancient Near East, what sweeteners do they have? Um, and, of course, I read this somewhere, but the only sweeteners they had at that time was dried fruit that they could put on. Or, once in a blue moon, if you found it yourself, you could put on honey. So this is like... The best bread they have ever had. It's as sweet as honey that they were able to taste. God supernaturally provided for them. God knows us. But God miraculously provides for us. God is a supernatural God. When we have needs, He supernaturally provides for us. The third thing that we see here is God tests. Go back to verse 4. It says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. You're going to go out. You're going to gather every day that I may test them. Right? So God's explicit. The way that I'm going to provide for you, the way I'm going to show you that I know you, is I'm going to test you. And of course, we know that the word test in some ways is unhelpful. Because whenever we in the Western world think of the word test, the first place that we go to when we think about a test is a classroom setting where we have a professor or a teacher and they give us a test. And when we think about the relationship of what do we want to do with a test is we really want to prove ourselves on the test. We want to prove to ourselves what grade we can get. We want to prove to others the grade that we can get for whatever professor, right? That's when we think of the word test. And when God tests us, that's not so much like a teacher to a pupil. That's more like a father to a child. And he's testing in such a way to reveal something in us. It's it's also to reveal it. But he's not testing us so that we have to prove anything. He's not testing us to condemn us if we fail. He's testing us so that we can be revealed who we are, so that we can be healed. God tests us so that he can heal us. God's testing does reveal stuff in us that's not always so good. But when those are revealed, he'll test us again. And he'll test us again until he will literally test us into faithfulness. He'll test us even into passing and into obedience. And if you look, this word test is in the narrative before this narrative with food. And it's in the narrative after. And you can look at the whole wilderness wandering of Israel and see that it's one test after another that God is giving to his people. And if we actually are paying attention also, as soon as we see this word test that's here in Exodus to the people of Israel, we should hyperlink that and no wait. We're clued in. This idea of testing has been talked about before in the scriptures. What is God doing? Why is he so explicit that he's testing? If we remember two years ago, studying Genesis' story of redemption, right? Abraham, we look at the testing that God did to Abraham. Why is it that God tests us? God tests us to heal us, right? If you look at the story of Abraham's life, commentators have even been able to look at that in the 10 different testing accounts 
in Abram. What does God do? God gives Abram an enormous promise in the beginning of his relationship with him. He says you're going to have kings that will come from you. He says you're going to have a descendants as, multiple, as huge as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, that you will be great. You'll be blessed to be a blessing. He gives him this great promise, and then all of a sudden he tests him. And what's he testing him around? He's testing him as to whether Abram will trust that God will have his promise work no matter what. Whether Abram thinks that he needs to do it on his own. That he needs to figure it out and make things happen on his own. Right? God's testing us for what is it that we just believe here and what's actually revealed to be true that we believe here. So if you look at Abram's life and the testing that he has, right, if you know the story of Abram, there's a time where he goes into a foreign land and he's with his wife, Sarah. And when he's with his wife, Sarah, in a foreign land, someone thinks she's really beautiful and he's concerned that they're going to, you know, take her, that they're going to kill him in order to get his wife. And so he lies to protect himself. What, what's happening there is Abram might be thinking, wait a second, if God's giving me this promise that I'm going to be great, if God's giving me this promise that many descendants will come, Sarah can't die, and he's taking matters into his own hands to keep the promise for himself. And he does not, he's not really so great in that test. But God is kind to him and gives him another test. Because, well, God's kind to him, saves him from that situation completely how God would. Takes him another test. He's in another foreign land. Another, he's concerned people think his wife is beautiful. And he does literally the same thing. And we see this over and over again. God is proving himself really faithful. God continues to work even when Abram messes up. But Abram is being tested and tested and tested. And this sense that he believes that God is going to do his promises is only just here. But when it's actually tested, it doesn't come out that it's in his whole self that he believes. Until when? Until the final story of Abram that will not the final but the final test that Abram gives where he's called to take your son Abram your only son whom you love and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah which had less to do with just him actually sacrificing his son had everything to do with him sacrificing the one hope of his promise and the whole test was Abram are you going to trust me that I will be able to make good on these promises by myself or are you going to take matters into your own hands? And Abram says to God, you know, he, he follows and he obeys. And in the end, God speaks to him and says, now I know that you fear the Lord. That's what God does when he tests us. Is God tests us into obedience. Our tests in our walk with God always go to the promises that God has given us. And they are testing around the places where we are currently weak. Not so that God can condemn us, but that he can heal us. That he can test us, reveal his goodness to us, and then graciously give us another test. That we can actually see God's faithfulness in. Amen? So where is it right now? Where is it that you feel... Where is it right now that you actually specifically feel that way of, you know, I can tell right here there's a test that's going on in my life. There's a place where slavery feels more like freedom, where freedom feels more like slavery. But there's a place where I want to take that matter into my own hands. 
want to finish with what some of what Jesus says about um, about this passage. I think it reveals that Jesus shows he knows our need, that he provides, and that he knows what a test is. It's in John 6. Zach referenced it in the collect that he prayed. But Jesus reveals in this that he knows our need. He has just multiplied the, the, the loaves and the fish, just done a really cool party trick. And there's tons of people who are following after him. And when there's crowds of people that are following after him, after he's just multiplied a bunch of bread, they say, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What Jesus is saying is, I know your need. I know what you really need. What you really need is not this bread that I just multiplied for you. You're seeking me to get this bread. But he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You may not even know what you need. You feel like you're seeking me to see these fun tricks. You feel like you're seeking me because you need bread. But I know what you truly need is eternal life. I know what you really need is not to die, is to have a rich and a communion life in God, a life forever. Jesus says this. He says, I am here to be the provider of that need. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Jesus knows what you need. And Jesus is your provider, giving up himself to you so that in him you may have that which you truly need. Jesus himself who was tested on our behalf knows that we will be tested around this. I really think the central promise that right now we so often are tested around is, is Jesus enough. Right? When slavery feels like freedom and freedom feels like slavery, is eternal life actually the best? Is eternal life actually what I need? And what Jesus does that offends people and that also frees people is he actually says, I know that you are indeed in slavery. I know that everything that you are getting right now will fade. And I have something to provide for you that will last and will endure. I have living bread to give you. Pray. Father, we just... We thank you. We thank you that you have bread to give us that this world does not know about. 
is to invite the Spirit of God to speak specifically to you, that if there was any place where a nostalgic narrative was coming to your mind, a place where slavery was feeling like freedom, freedom was feeling like slavery, just invite you to imagine the person of Jesus and to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you show me that you are enough? Would you show me what you have to give me? 